Hello and welcome to the MarTech Alliance Marketing Technology Book Club. Today I am joined by none other than Seth Godin. It is an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us, Seth. For anybody that possibly isn't familiar with your work, would you mind giving us a little bit of background about yourself and what you've been doing for a very long time in the marketing space? I'm a teacher, I'm an entrepreneur, a blogger, uh, I've written 19 best-selling books. And a long time ago, I pioneered commercial email that isn't spam, which is called permission marketing. Before that, I worked at a software company as a, as a young tyke, spending lots of investors' money to do marketing the old way. And I learned a ton about making stuff, about software, and about how people choose to buy or not buy things. Fantastic. And today we are here to talk about This Is Marketing, which I've just got to say, I, I, would, I would best describe it as marketing poetry it was absolutely fantastic honestly it's it's one of those books where there's just moments where you just stop and have to just think it's just fantastic it's just piercing it really is really 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 did enjoy reading it. it's fantastic thanks can i ask you if you had to summarize it because there'll, there'll be some people listening that possibly are not familiar or haven't yet picked up a copy of the book how would you best describe it well there's been a revolution going on for 30 years and the revolution is the death of the TV industrial complex, the end of a strip mining attention, the end of average stuff for average people and mass marketing. But that's the marketing we're all used to. It's what we instinctively want to do. An entire industry built up around it. And for 30 years, I've been talking about it and experimenting with it and exploring it. And now I think it's time to put a stake in the ground and say, now, it, we're not going back to the old days. The new days are about practical empathy, about understanding how ideas spread, about doing work that matters for people who care. And what I try to do in this book is, you know, I got a note from a guy the other day, he said, I, I'm looking at your book, where are the tactics about how to get more Facebook followers? No, there are other books for that. This is not a book for that. So just on that point there, actually, you talk about getting off the social media merry-go-round. Talk in a little bit more detail around that. Well, I think Recent headlines have made it really clear what people like me have been saying for a long time, which is if you're not paying for Facebook, you're the product. You're not the customer. Same thing's true with Twitter and Insta and the rest of it. They are optimized to make you feel badly if you're not using them. They're optimized to make you use it more to find out what people are saying behind your back. They have created metrics that aren't real that make you feel like you need to make certain numbers go up, even though those numbers aren't related to where you want to go. And you know, so how many followers do you have? Well, it doesn't matter. And the reason it doesn't matter is they're not really your friends and they're not really your followers. They are simply people who clicked a button one way or the other. So the best way to get attention is to get naked and run down Main Street. Um, <laughs> but that's not going to help you with your goals. So don't do that. And the alternative is to find the smallest viable audience, the smallest group of people you can survive and thrive with, obsess about them. You get to pick who they are, make something for them that they care about, that they can't get enough of, that they talk about, and then you don't have a marketing problem anymore. And just on that point, so the smallest viable audience, you talked a lot about psychographics versus demographics. Can right. you expand on that? Why it's so important today? So we used demographics for a hundred years because we had no choice. A magazine would tell you how old its readers were. A mailing list would tell you whether you were going to be able to reach people who were men or women or what zip code they lived in or postal code. But now we know what people like, not who, what they look like. We know what they're interested in. We know how they behave. Those are called psychographic. So what we get is a chance to seek out people 
who are predisposed to want what we want and need what we need and talk to them. And it doesn't make any sense to just run around interrupting people because you can. It doesn't make any sense at all. What brands do you think really understand that this is marketing? Who out there is living it? I don't think there are any brands that understand anything. I think there are people. Uh, and some people work for companies where they're able to do their human work. And some people uh, have chosen not to. And as soon as you point to a company and say they're doing it right, it's inevitable because of karma that they will stop doing it right. And it's not because of Zeus or Thor. It's because the pressures on companies push them to become mediocre because mediocre and average are the same thing. It's even worse when you're a public company. And so if we look at the arc of many companies, as an organization gets better, it gets bigger, it gets more profitable, and then it takes superhuman effort to keep at doing this human thing. And since I just said superhuman, I'll give you an example. A company makes an email client called Superhuman, and it costs a dollar a day. Now, if you think a dollar a day is too much money to spend for a better email client when all the other email clients in the world are free, it's not for you. So that's the first thing, right? That the idea is the smallest viable audience. Because if you end up with only 100,000 people paying you a dollar a day, you're going to make $36 million a year. That's enough. That's great. Number two, if you want to use this software, someone comes to your house or your office and sits with you for an hour to get you started. This is before you pay a dollar. So you're on the waiting list. I'm told there are more than 20,000 people on the waiting list now. In my case, the CEO and founder came to my office, but it wasn't treating me special. He has onboarded personally more than 400 people. So more than 400 times he has gotten in his car or gotten on a plane, gone to someone's house or office and sat with them for an hour while they used his software. So here's the question. Do you think he has a better idea of how you use the software than that yachts at Google who's breaking Gmail every day? Of course he does because they're doing something that doesn't scale. They're doing something personal and human and real and telling a story and living it. And they didn't pay me, I don't get a referral fee, but it's easy for me to talk about superhuman because it's extraordinary. And when was the last time Apple Computer did something like that? I can't remember. You also, one of the other key things that popped up in your book, you talked about having a better business plan. Can you talk us through that and talk us through your structure and methodology for it? Most people who are entrepreneurs make a business plan the way most people looking for a job make a resume, which is they fill in the format. They try to become just barely visible enough that they can get through the exercise without becoming scathed in any way. They work to fit in. They talk about stuff that everybody already knows and they hide the stuff that they're afraid of. And my argument is that a business plan could be a really useful tool to surface the hard part. What are the hard parts? Where are the places you are going where you're not sure? What are the things that you have and what are the things that you need and how are you gonna get the things that you need? So in the book, I break it all into, into detail. It's only two or three pages long. Core message is this. The only reason to go to work in an office is to make things better. And you already have a great job with free snacks. You can just snooze your way through it for a really long time before they'll catch on. But if you're going to go to work, you're going to work to make things better. If you're going to make things better, if you can talk about it clearly and honestly, things will get better faster. So in the Alt-MBA, the school that I've been running for more than two years, that's what we do. We tell each other the truth. We learn to see. 
We learn to ask difficult questions. And if you're not willing to do those things, then just snooze your way through work and stop pretending. I like that. I like the idea of just differentiating and being very, very clear about what it is you want. Yeah, because we're marketers make change. If there's no change, there's no marketing. Another really interesting sort of distinction you made was the idea between a brand and a logo. Right. In practical terms, how would you recommend that anybody that's listening can audit themselves? You know, it's fair to say that there'll be instances where people possibly think their brand has greater reach, engagement, perception, positioning than is real. So how do we how do we all step back and go, we're in the logo game, not the branding game? And how do we change that? First, think of a logo you admire. I've tried this on hundreds of people. Tell me what you pick. Apple. Right. No one ever picks the logo of a company they hate. No one ever picks, I don't know, a swastika because they're not actually thinking about the logo. They're thinking about the brand. They're thinking about how the brand makes them feel. So if you think about Starbucks, Starbucks has one of the worst logos in history. It is a woman half naked with matted hair, very difficult to draw from memory, but it's great because it reminds you of a brand you care about. And too often we get all up in arms and focused on how do we look, not what do we mean. And if you're spending a lot of time on the surface part and it gets really bad when you spend $100,000 on a logo and then everyone in your company chimes in and has an opinion, you're hiding from the real work, which is what is the promise you are making? When I mention your name, what does it do to someone's emotional state? Because all a logo is, is an identifier. It's a shorthand to remind us of the promises that are about to be made and kept. And one way that I like to talk about this, which isn't in the book, if Nike announced they were opening a hotel, I think you'd have a good sense as to what it would be like to stay there. But if Hyatt or Hilton came out with a brand of shoes, you'd have no idea what it would be like (laughs) because they don't have brands. They just have logos. Interesting. A good way to look at it. Flipping on to something different. You also, I I love the semiotics example you gave around Nigerian spam being so sloppy. For anyone that hasn't yet listened, would you mind just giving that example and explaining, well, two things. One, walking through it, because I think it's just fantastic. But also just giving, I suppose, the detail of just why semiotics is so crucial for delivering your message. So semiotics is a flag. It is the shorthand when you see an octagonal red sign in any country in the world you know what you should do in your car it's symbols and flags okay by the way good news the wire transfer for 25 million dollars just came in who knew it was going to come to me but it did i got the 25 million when you get the nigerian spam it's filled with misspellings and it's clearly a scam now these guys have been at it for a really long time they have the resources to improve the note why don't they The reason they don't is because it's very expensive to take someone from the first piece of spam all the way through all the interactions to ripping them off. And the only person who's going to pay off on that journey is someone who is desperate and stupid. And so the first email that you get is intentionally wrong because they want you to go away. It's not for you. It is a flag for somebody else. And that idea that there is no universal correct answer. You know, you and I were talking earlier and a fire alarm went off. Your fire alarm doesn't sound like my fire alarm. So the question is, what's the right sound for a fire alarm? Is it the UK sound or the New York sound? Well, there is no right sound. There's just the sound we recognize. And so that's what it means to get a haircut because there's no physical hygiene reason to get a haircut. You are merely flying a flag when you get your haircut. And who are you flying it for? This typeface, who is it for? 
What story am I telling through the way I answer the phone? And all of these are choices. And we are not very good at making those choices with intent. If you wouldn't mind, I'd, I'd like to also just talk more broadly, just away from the book for a moment, really around, I suppose, your views on education today and the future. You've also chatted a lot about connecting dots and collecting and collecting them. I'd love just to, to touch on that in a bit more detail. So school, this is related to the conversation we've had about marketing, is a byproduct of the industrial age. The very age that gave us 100 years of advertising also gave us 100 years of factories. And you're not far from the birthplace of large-scale industrialism. And it turns out that in England, in the 1880s, instead of coffee carts going up and down the rows of the factories in Manchester, they had gin carts. There were people who would go up and down with gin because for 20 years, people were in a drunken stupor because we shifted them from the farm to the factory, a dark, dangerous place where they spent 12 hours a day doing what they were told. And that's the big difference between farming and factories is you have to do what you're told. And we ran out of factory workers, so we invented school so we would have enough people who could sit still for 10 hours a day and do what they were told. That is the function of school. And so we taught kids a whole bunch of things, some of which are useful, most of which aren't. And one of the things we teach is the act of collecting dots. There's going to be a test on Friday. Here are all the dots. Memorize them. And then on Friday, prove to me you memorize them. And then you can forget them because Monday we're going to start all over again. That is the act of collecting dots. And so we got to work and that's what we do is we show up at that meeting where we're not going to speak and we take good notes. Why did we even go to the meeting? That's stupid. And we are busy liking this and retweeting that and live tweeting this. Why? Because we're collecting dots and that's not where value is created. Value is created by connecting dots by saying, here are three points in a line. No one has ever seen that they connect to each other, but me. I'm going to draw that line, even though I might be wrong, I'm going to assert that this line makes sense. And if I'm right, the marketplace will reward me. That's pretty new at scale and we're not doing it enough. And what do you think the future holds in education? How do you think it will change in the next sort of two to five years or, or beyond that? Yeah, I think we are in the US, I can't speak for Europe. I think we are on the verge of a catastrophic meltdown in higher education people who are a quarter million dollars in debt are starting to say, why did I do that? So Harvard's not going anywhere. Princeton's not going anywhere, but there's this whole middle layer of school that's in jeopardy. And it's going to be replaced by a crazy scrum of alternatives. You know, I'm busy running some things, but I'm not going to replace higher education all by myself. But learning this here or learning that there and figuring it out, because the idea that you have to go to a building in a foreign city, sit there for hours a day while someone live lectures to you is so inefficient and so remarkably ineffective at its stated goal that it has to be replaced and it will but it's going to be messy and i suppose staying on a similar theme what what advice would you give for anybody that's starting a career in marketing right now don't get an internship don't go work for a big company don't sit around taking notes start marketing something go down the street wealthy person who lives on the hill who hasn't had a garage sale in 20 years and say if I sell the stuff in your garage, can we split the money? And then go figure out how to run a profitable garage sale. Go find a way to market your stuff on eBay or whatever it is. Find a charity and raise $100,000 for them. Start a podcast and grow it. It doesn't make any sense to go work at Procter & Gamble. You will learn 1984 marketing. Why would you want to know that? 
you should go market. And the people who market, it's cheaper and faster and less risky than ever before. Those people are learning something really valuable. Go do it. Fantastic. I've got to ask as well. So what does the future hold for you? Have you got any new projects on the horizon? Any possible detours you're considering? It's been three weeks since my book (laughs) was hit number one. Give me a break. (laughs) Of course I have new projects on the horizon. Right now I am doubling down on the ability that I have to educate people. So this is marketing is now a seminar called the marketing seminar. 6,600 people have taken it. It's changed their lives. We're going to do it again and again. We're going to launch two or three more courses in the next six months because they work. And then, yeah, there's some bigger stuff around the corner, but it's got to be fully baked or at least mostly baked before Mm. I ship it into the world. Fantastic. Seth, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I can't explain how thankful I am for your time and how appreciative I am for having been able to chat with you. It's interesting. So for me, when I launched this business, one of the things I was asked in my exit interview from a large company was, why are you leaving? And my answer was, I just really want to work with the smartest marketers in the world. So this for me is personally a real massive personal opportunity. It's great, obviously, that I'm able to record this and push this out to our listeners. But selfishly, this is a massive, massive personal goal and tick for myself. Um, So thank you so much. Perfect. Well, thank you. I'm really honored and keep making this ruckus. It matters. Thank you. Thank you. If there's anything at any point we can ever do to support anything you're doing, we're one email away and consider it done. Really appreciate it. We'll see you soon. Thanks, Seth.